Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour here on the AmericaOutloud.com. I am your host, Randy Sutton, a retired police lieutenant with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, 34-year police veteran, the author of several books, including A Cop's Life and the soon-to-be-released Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety. Also, I am the founder of the organization known as The Wounded Blue. We are the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. This show is dedicated to the physical, emotional, spiritual well-being of the American law enforcement community. And this show is dedicated to those who are serving today and have served in the previous years. We talk about all things law enforcement on the show, and I have a great guest waiting for us. But before I do that, uh, we have what's called our reality check, where I eulogize and memorialize the officers who have made the ultimate sacrifice and paid with their lives to serve the people of their communities. And unfortunately, I have five names to read today. The first is police officer Kevin Cram of the Algana Police Department in Iowa. Police officer Kevin Cram was shot and killed while attempting to arrest a man with an active warrant for harassment. At 7.53 p.m., Officer Cram located the subject in the 1100 block of South Minnesota Street and Algona. When Officer Cram notified the man that he was being placed under arrest, the subject shot him and fled. Officer Cram was transported to the health center where he was pronounced dead. The subject was arrested in Minnesota and charged with first-degree murder. Officer Cram served with the Algona Police Department for eight years, had previously served with the Norris Spring Police Department, and he survived by his wife and children. Police Officer Kevin Cram, Algona Police Department, Ohio. End of watch Wednesday, September 13th, 2023. The next is Deputy Sheriff 2, Austin Smith Rudeluber of the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office in North Carolina. Deputy Sheriff Austin Rudeluber was killed in a vehicle crash on North Carolina 150 at 5.15 a.m. A box truck driving south on North Carolina 150 crossed the center line and struck the deputy's patrol vehicle traveling northbound. Both vehicles came to a stop on the southbound shoulder the deputy was transported to Baptist Hospital where he succumbed to his injuries. The other driver was not injured. He was charged with misdemeanor death by motor vehicle, reckless driving, and driving left of center. The deputy was a United States Army veteran, has served with the Forsyth Sheriff's Office for over two years. He is survived by his wife and two children. Deputy Sheriff 2, Austin Smith Rudel Uber. Forsyth County Sheriff's Office, North Carolina, end of watch, Saturday, September 9th, 2023. The third is Detective Robert Garten of the Hartford Police Department in Connecticut. Detective Bobby Garten was killed when his patrol car was struck by a fleeing vehicle at the intersection of Asylum Avenue and Broad Street at about 10.30 p.m. Officers initiated a traffic stop on the vehicle with canceled registration tags as they approached the vehicle. It sped north on Broad Street. However, officers did not pursue it. Detective Garten was in the passenger seat of a patrol car traveling east on Asylum Avenue with emergency equipment activated en route to another incident. 
The fleeing car sped through the Farmington Avenue red traffic signal, and as it was speeding through the red traffic signal, it struck the passenger side of the cruiser. Detective Gartner and the officer driving the cruiser were transported to St. Francis Hospital, where Officer Gartner succumbed to his injuries. The other officer was admitted in stable condition. The subject is in custody, charged with failure to obey a traffic control signal, failure to renew registration, misuse of plates, interfering with a police officer. Detective Garden has served with Hartford Police Department for eight years. He is a second generation police officer. He is survived by his parents, brothers, nephews, and grandmother. He was posthumously promoted to detective. Detective Robert Garten, Hartford Police Department, Connecticut. End of watch, September 6, 2023. The fourth is Governmental Affairs Liaison Michael Elaine Griffin of the Mississippi Department of Public Safety in Mississippi. Governmental Affairs Liaison Mike Griffin was killed at the scene of a crash on Highway 6 near Batesville at about 11 a.m. He was en route to Jackson when he encountered the crash involving a partially overturned vehicle. As he was checking on the entrapped driver, the vehicle shifted and fell on top of the officer, causing him to suffer fatal injuries. Governmental Affairs Liaison was a U.S. Marine Corps veteran. He has served in the current position as a sworn law enforcement officer with the Mississippi Department of Public Safety for two years after having retired from the Mississippi Highway Patrol in 34 years of police service. He is survived by his wife and daughter. Governmental Affairs Liaison Michael Elaine Griffin, Mississippi Department of Public Safety, Mississippi. End of watch, Monday, September 4, 2023. And finally, Deputy Sheriff Ryan Clickenbrumer of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department in California. Deputy Sheriff Ryan Clickenbrumer was shot and killed in an unprovoked ambush at the intersection of Sierra Highway and Avenue Q, just outside of the Palmdale Sheriff's Station at about 6 p.m. Deputy Clickenbrumer was stopped at a red light when another car pulled alongside his patrol car and an occupant opened fire, striking him in the head. A passerby located Deputy Clickenbrumer in the vehicle moments later and alerted authorities. Deputy Clickenbrumer was transported to Antelope Valley Medical Center where he succumbed to his wounds. A suspect was ar arrested later that evening. Deputy Clickenbrumer had served the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office, Sheriff's Department for eight years. It was a third generation member of the agency. He had just gotten engaged four days previous, and he is survived by his fiance, parents, and grandparents. Deputy Sheriff Ryan Clickenbrumer, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, California. End of watch, Saturday, September 16th, 2023. Each of these law enforcement officers served with distinction and gave their lives in the line of duty. May they rest in peace and let them never be forgotten. We're going to talk about um, a little bit more about Deputy Sheriff Ryan Clickenbrumer with our guest, who I'm going to introduce right now. Tanya Owen is her name. She is a veteran detective with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department and uh, also an author and speaker on uh, some really important topics that we're going to talk about in depth here. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you for 
taking the time to join me. Thank you, Randy. Uh, you know, as you were reading the names of the fallen officers and each with each one, I felt my chest just get tighter and I could feel that heavy breathing. It's, it's just, it's overwhelming the emotion that I feel right now. And especially with the, with the brutal assassination of our deputy, uh, Deputy Klinkenbrumer. Uh, it's just, uh, it's horrible and it's time for us to be angry and mad and do something about this. Well, what's particularly, and I, I purposefully did not say this in, in the introduction, but um, for my uh, viewers and listeners, uh, Tanya is the widow of a, um, a another Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy who was brutally murdered as well. And that's why I know that um, this recent murder of, of one of uh, one of your own department's deputies, I know has a particular dramatic significance to you. Absolutely. Uh, it brings all of the emotions back. Um, you know, it's been almost seven, seven years since my husband was murdered. And just as you feel that you might be starting to heal, this happens and it literally starts the clock all over again. That Saturday afternoon, I was with the family emotionally. I knew exactly where they were going through. The, when I saw the procession, I felt all of it and the pain is just too much to bear when a loved one is, is murdered in such fashion. And, um, you know, I've also spoke not only with my family, they are back on, they've gone back to October 5th, 2016, when my husband Steve was murdered. And not, not only that, but his team of guys, they've also gone back to that day. This is something that will, will never end because these are not just coworkers. This is our family. This is our law enforcement family. These are our brothers and our sisters. So yes, we take this very personally and we take it to heart. So let's let's talk a little bit about about your your law enforcement career. Let's start with that. Um, you uh, you did um, a, a more than two decades as a sheriff's deputy. Let's talk about. I want to go way back in time when you made the decision that you wanted to join the law enforcement family yourself. What was it that um, that uh, inspired you to want to become a police a, a law enforcement officer? My brother, to be honest with you, my brother at the time was uh, a member of the Marine Corps, and uh, I really admired uh, the way he carried himself, the integrity that he he had, uh, that he believed in something higher than himself, that he was willing to serve, and that he was willing to to fight evil. And um, you know, initially, my thought was to go into the medical field, but there was something attractive about wearing that uniform and being the person that could, could go out there and help others. So your, your, it was your brother's service that inspired you. Um, and then, so at that time, getting on the, on the LA Sheriff's Department was, I mean, there, there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of competition to get that job. Um, how did you find the, the process of, of entering the law enforcement community and, and what was the significance of it to you? 
Back then, uh, and when I say back then, I'm talking back in 1985, which is when I applied to become a, uh, a law enforcement officer. And the process back then was very rigorous. You have to go through a very detailed background investigation and, uh, you know, um, oral interviews. And you have to have the right mindset uh, to become a law enforcement officer. And uh, I found it to be very challenging because in my particular case, there was over 100 people uh, testing for five positions. And I was very fortunate to be one of those five that was hired initially for the Santa Monica Police Department. Uh, and I joined the Santa Monica Police Department in 1986. I worked patrol for almost two years there. And for a while, I was taken out of patrol to work with our Narcotics Bureau as an undercover officer. Uh, in late 1987, I lateraled to the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And in 2018, after 32 years of service, uh, I retired. That's a long storied career. Um, now, let me ask you this. When you joined the uh, L.A. Sheriff's Department, uh, that's one of the largest uh, agencies in the country. What were your assignments there? Initially, with like it, with any sheriff's department, uh, it is uh, we have to go to custody. That is with any sheriff's department versus uh, a police department. With police department recruits, they go directly to work the streets. With the sheriff's department, our main focus is to be in charge of the jail system. So that is where all of our young deputies start their careers in custody. And then after that, they're uh, sent out to patrol, they work patrol, and from there, just literally everything op opens up to you. You can either choose to stay in, in patrol or promote to detectives. For me in particular, I worked the streets for several years. I later became a field training officer. Uh, and after having done that, I was selected to be the first female to be a gang investigator at our station in the Antelope Valley. And I'll tell you what, that was very humbling for me to be the first, not only the first female, but the only female assigned with the team of guys. And uh, we did some incredible work. I learned so much from these guys. And um, for me, it was during that time that I've received what I would call the best compliment a female officer can get from her brothers out in the field when they told me that I was one of the guys. I don't know what that <laughs> sounds like, <laughs> but when they told me that I was like one of the guys, it was to me, it was the highlight of that time to be considered one of the guys. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so uh, what assignments were you as a detective? I, I know that every every agency is a little different. They, some are, you know, did you spend your entire detective's career as a gang investigator? No, after uh, working gangs, I went to a station detective and I was a robbery assaults detective for a time. And then after that, I promoted to what we call our headquarters detectives uh, bureau, which is kind of like the uh, the next level of detectives versus being a station detective. Now you go to like a major bureau. At that point, I was working child abuse. I was a child abuse detective, and um, the Antelope Valley is considered to be one of the uh, has one of the highest uh, child abuse. Uh, 
reports and calls that come into the station. And we're talking very um, violent, very sadistic type of child abuse. As soon as I hit the ground running at, at this office, my very first case was a shaken baby case. The very next one was a child who was being molested by her father. The very next one was a child who was, uh, who was, who was burned because she was not learning quick enough how to do things. So that was a form of discipline that the parent used to teach this child how to listen to her. Uh, the type of cases that we get here in the Antelope Valley are gruesome. And, um, and so I was involved with, with that particular unit for five years before I went to my final unit of assignment for the last uh, 14 years, which was our, our sheriff's bomb squad. Uh, in that particular unit, I was a fire investigator as well as an explosives technician. And I was very fortunate that later in my career in that unit, I became a canine handler and uh, had and had a uh, explosive detection canine. That is an incredible career. Um, you know, you, you talk about being an, an explosives in the explosives unit. Uh, that to me, that that cho that shows me something about you that you chose that particular <laughs> unit. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I'd, I would, I'd be running from that unit. So <laughs> that tells me a little <laughs> bit about about the challenges that that uh, that you enjoy as, that you enjoyed as a law enforcement officer. Now, you uh, you met your husband, your future husband on the on the job. Um, and if you would talk about your marriage and then the, the, the horrible situation that took place with his murder. Yes, I met Steve on the job. He uh, actually came from a station down in South Central Los Angeles. And if I could take a minute just to kind of describe to you what Los Angeles County looks like, we cover over 4,000 uh, square miles and we have approximately 26 sheriff stations that cover the entire county that doesn't count uh and that does not include i mean lapd which covers the city of los angeles um, and during that time i was assigned to the north county steve was assigned to what we call here as the ghetto station which was the linwood sheriff station um, and i don't think i need to explain what, what that is a ghetto station uh, they're dealing continuously with uh, shootings every day with murders uh, you know, the, the worst of the worst uh, in L.A. And it's almost like every stop or every contact, uh, there, there's something that, that could potentially happen versus other stations that might be a little bit slower. So by the time Steve came to Antelope Valley, um, he had already been involved in three shootings at the wow. Linwood uh, Sheriff's Station. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and then he was involved in one other shooting here in the Antelope Valley. Uh, Steve was well-versed. He just was the guy that knew everything. He was one of those law enforcement officers that if you talk to people, people would say he was like a, a Wyatt Earp, a, a John, he was the John Wayne of cops. And I think we all know, because we have those cops everywhere, right? We know a guy that is that has that type of reputation. And Steve was the, the type of person who, who was a natural born leader. Uh, and, it, and it was just the way he carried himself, his knowledge, and really most importantly was his humility. I mean, I really think that's why, you know, the man behind the badge, the man behind the, 
the three stripes was respected the way he was. And he uh, always made it a point to always know more than the next person. Uh, he was the type of supervisor that would take care of his guys. And um, he also was the type of supervisor that when there was pandemonium at a call and he showed up, it's like everybody took a breath because Sergeant Steve Owen was on the scene. Not only right. did the deputies feel that way, but also the, the lieutenants and the captains, mm -hmm. the, the people above him. He was that caliber of person and supervisor. You know, I, I and, want, but, before you go on, I, I, I wanted to say something to the audience. Um, you know, you just heard that, that Steve had been involved in four uh, critical incident gunfights. I want to tell you how highly unusual that is for a law enforcement officer. Um, the vast majority of law enforcement officers will never in their entire 20, 30 year career ever get involved in a shooting. And so it's a very, a very low number of officers that actually will get involved in one. And so when you are involved in a, in a, in a number of these, of these type of events, uh, it, what it shows is that this, this officer was out and about, that he was, he was uh, an aggressive officer and, and was, uh, was one of those cops who um, gets involved. And so that, that's, that talks a little bit about the character of, uh, of Steve and how much uh, he was respected in that law enforcement community there. 100% Randy, absolutely. And you know, and I, I'm not the type of person to brag. I want to be always be humble. That's important to me. And my husband was uber humble. But I, I think I, I, I should say this only because I want to show additionally the caliber of person that he was. Uh, he if, if you look at the picture behind me, that was the last medal Steve received. He received a total of six medals in his career. And that's, uh, of different that's, types of that's an incredible that's an incredible rack of medals and of um, can you do you know what those medals were for yes um oh boy <laughs> <laughs> i wish i had that in front of me um but you know as we continue talking about steve i, I will go ahead and bring it up and tell you exactly what they were for um but as Steve, you know, came to the Antelope Valley, he was actually the first one to go to the gang unit. And Steve and I had actually had a, uh, not a so good run in, in patrol years before I went to the gang, gang unit. And because of that run in, um, him and he didn't care for me, we didn't like each other. So <laughs> as it were, yes. So as it were, when I was actually selected to go to the to the gang unit, um, I was very happy to do so. And at the time when I was part of the gang unit, they did not leave partners together for any long length of time because it was very recent to an incident we had in the late 80s involving narcotic officers who uh, had decided to turn into, into criminals. And the department felt that because they left them together too long, they were, you know, they felt comfortable with each other enough to start doing things that were not, that were against the law. So that, all those guys were arrested as they should have been. And so the department was very gun shy about having teams uh, be together 
for any length of time. So the reason I'm saying that is because after I worked with this uh, very first partner, I was then told by my sergeant that I was my next partner was going to be Steve Owen. And I said, no, I had to talk with my sergeant. I said, sir, with all due respect, I can I please not work with Owen? We had a falling out and I really don't want to work with him. And he said, well, too bad, so sad. He says, that's who you're working with. You figure it out. Before you go on, <laughs> I, we actually have to take a, take a hard break and then we'll be back and, uh, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. One Nation Coffee, One Nation Coffee, patriotic, uh, veteran-owned, uh, very, very good coffee. I w actually went down and visited their roasting facility and met with the folks down there, uh, John and his crew, and they are amazing people. The coffee is delicious. You order it online. They bring it right to your house. You can get the ground coffee. You can get beans. I like to grind my own. They've got uh, also got these, uh, you know, the the containers that you put in your Kerrig or whatever that thing is called. So um, One Nation Coffee. Go to OneNationCoffee.com. Order your coffee, and uh, you'll get great coffee, and you'll be supporting uh, a patriotic company that supports the Wounded Blue. So uh, go to OneNationCoffee.com. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix Rx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix Rx is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. 
Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Out loud. America Out Loud. News is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. I want to tell you about a company called OfficerPrivacy.com. It's a law enforcement owned company that does some really amazing stuff. Now, uh, when I when I found out about this company, I was approached by the, uh, the the founder of the company who told me, Randy, do you know how easy it is to find out where you live? And I go, what do you mean? And he said, you're all over the internet. He said, there's private information about you all over the internet. And I can, and he, and he said, I can tell you, I can tell you the cars you drive. I can tell you the, the how, where you live. And he says, I created officerprivacy.com as a, as a way to protect law enforcement officers. So what they actually do, he, he employs nothing but, but former and current police officers. They actually go into the internet. They find all of your private information and they scrub it. I, this is amazing stuff. I never gave it any consideration until he, he, he uh, you know, showed me the realities. So, you know, this day and age, officer safety is is more and more important than it's ever been and that officer safety also includes you know protecting yourself and your family so go to officerprivacy.com it's not expensive they do amazing stuff with this and uh and they're a, they're doing great work so go to officerprivacy.com check them out and uh and tell them if you you heard it from randy over at the wounded blue all right let's talk about some other stuff now I'm, I'm, I want to get back to our to our guest before I, I talk about the wounded blue. So let's just go right back to Tanya, who's waiting for us. Tanya, thanks for 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 waiting while while we we uh, we did our little shtick there. Um, but please continue right where where you were at. You had you had um, just been partnered with your future husband, who you didn't get along with. Right. And Randy, you know that we could talk for hours. There's so much we could talk about. So I'm going to try not to be long winded. But yes, quickly. Yes. So Steve and I uh, were partnered together. We I later learned he also went to the sergeant. He didn't want to work with me. And it wasn't because I said a falling out. I was wrong. It was a disagreement that had to do with with police work. That's it. And so uh, that first week that we worked together, you could cut the tension with the knife in that car. <laughs> I'll bet. It was horrible. But, and you know, and here's the thing though, as law enforcement officers, when we work a two-man car, 
we literally have to depend on each other for our lives. Right. So, uh, yes, and I quickly learned that me having that type of an attitude in that car was the wrong attitude to have. So I made a conscious decision to learn from him because he, he was a much better law enforcement officer than I. And I decided to work with him and make, be professional. And I tell you what, Randy, we did some great work. We put a ton of people in prison. We, took, we put gangsters in prison. We had an incredible time. And because of Steve-O, and that's when I really learned about investigations and how to write search warrants. He was my teacher in essence, not only my partner in police work. And then you fell in love. Not just yet. Okay. Uh, we we actually uh, so now we worked a, a period of time, and now it's time for us to be switched again. Remember, they're doing that switcheroo because of what happened. Sure. Now my the sergeant's telling me I have to go and be with another partner. This time I told the sergeant, "Would you please leave me with Owen? I am learning so much from him." <laughs> and he also went to the sergeant, said the same thing. He said, "Nope." time for you guys to move on. And that was it. You know, it was a very professional relationship um, and we moved on. And it wasn't until a year later that we reconnected and actually uh, started dating. But here I have the, you asked me to uh, find out the medals that he received. Yes. I have the list. Okay. So, so he received the following medals, the life-saving award, the leadership award, the Meritorious Service Award, the Exemplary Service Award, the Meritorious Conduct Gold Award, and the California Attorney General's Award for Valor. That's a hell of a that's a hell of a litany of awards, and I, it, it is literally a testimony to the kind of cop he was. So, how long were you married? We were married. Uh, we were married in '99. And he was uh, murdered in 2016, but we were together a total of 20 years. Okay. Now, I know, I know talking about this is painful, um, but this is something that is, you know, part of, of who you are now and, and where your life has taken you. Um, if you would, let's go back to that day when, um, when you were notified about uh, the death of your husband. You know, uh, and I, I'm going to speak to you from a wife's point of view, from a cop's point of view, and from a mother's point of view. Um, that particular morning, I had not seen Steve for several days because we were working so much. I had been attending canine training, and on that particular day, I was in. I was to go to Palm Springs. Uh, to be to start day one of certification with my dog. So I couldn't have been any further. I, I was literally three hours away from Lancaster. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Steve and I always kept uh, our radio on on each other's frequency to hear what the other one was doing. And I really believe that God protected me that day from listening to the radio traffic because at that time, you know, the other canine handlers and I were out in the mountain shooting. So I did not hear any of the radio traffic that occurred. So by the time, you know, lunch came, uh, we all went to a, a place to eat. My phone uh, had completely run out of, out of battery. So it was in my car. 
people were trying to call me. I heard, I knew nothing. So as I'm sitting at this location with uh, the other guys and my our trainer, he gets a phone call and says, um, yeah, she's here. Uh-huh. And I could see the look on his face. And I looked at him and he looked at me and he says, Tanya, it's the sergeant. She wants to talk to you. I get on the phone. Hey, Sarge. She says, Tanya, she says, uh, Steve's been involved in an incident. He's uh, being uh, taken to the hospital. And she's, that's when she said, Steve's been shot. My initial reaction was not to cry or panic. My, what, Believe it or not, I literally went into cop mode. And my only question to her was, is he alive? She said, yes, he's being transported to the hospital. I said, okay. And she says, we're sending a helicopter to pick you up. Well, during that time, I was completely composed and Steve's been shot, dad's been shot. You guys need to get to the hospital right away and you need to pray. Um, I called my daughter because my daughter was at the college uh, in Lancaster and I told her, and I knew she would be the first person from the family at the hospital. I explained to her that dad had been shot and I told her, you need to get to the hospital as quickly as possible. And I said, and you need to be strong for dad. Do not cry. He doesn't need that right now. What you need to tell him is to fight. Tell him that we love him and tell him I am on my way. And uh, so as you can imagine, my kids, they're not trained like we are, where we're very good at protecting our hearts because of all the depravity that we see in our careers. Um, you know, obviously I had gone into that self-preservation mode where literally nothing affected me as a normal person that's not in this profession would react, how they would react. So as, as I'm waiting for this helicopter, it finally lands. Uh, I get into the helicopter my lieutenant is present and the pilot and co-pilot. And we're flying uh, directly to uh, Antelope Valley Hospital. And during that time, I, be, I immediately began to pray and uh, ask God that if uh, Steve were not to be 100% percent from, you know, from his injuries, if he was going to be a vegetable, if he was going to be in that type of situation, I asked God to take him home. Um, you know, Steve and I had had a conversation, as I believe all law enforcement couples should have, and that is that should something happen, the other person needs to be prepared to make a decision. And for Steve and I, it was that if we were ever in a situation where we were be a, we would be a vegetable, we would be tied to a machine, that we gave each other permission to pull the plug effectively. And so that's where my... What an, <clears throat> what an incredible conversation that, that, that you have like that, and I understand it completely. Um, and you're, you're absolutely right. This is the type of conversation that all couples need to have, not just law enforcement, um, in order to you know, understand the wishes of the person that they love. But I understand that you making that decision and, of course, you know, uh, talking about all the things that are at play in your mind on this horrendous journey in the helicopter. Please go on from there. So as I was praying, Randy, and <sighs> I really want to share this because, you know, I don't I I talk a lot about my faith and I, I can honestly tell you that the instant I asked God if he, if he was not going to be 100% to take him home, 
I felt something pour over my head that was a warm sensation and a tingling sensation. And it slowly went down my head. And the instant, the milli instant that it stopped at my heart, the peace that I felt is indescribable. I almost felt like I was floating on air. Not only that, but I turned to my lieutenant smiling. And I told her, I said, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. God has just given me this incredible peace. But, you know, for people that don't understand, uh, you know, how prayer works, you know, God doesn't always answer our prayers, but what he does give us is that peace that we need to be able to handle whatever comes our way. And he promises us that he's going to be with us. So I I felt that incredible peace. She looked at me a little bit weird, like this chick is crazy because she's smiling at me after hearing her husband's been shot. And she put her hand on my on my thigh and said, you know, there's always hope. She already knew what was happening. Everyone already knew that my husband was gone except for me and no one would tell me. But that's a topic for another day. Uh, So as we come to over the helicopter, as you can imagine, there are hundreds of of law enforcement officers, vehicles. And when I was dropped, when the helicopter landed, I immediately started running towards my husband. It was a gauntlet of law enforcement officers. And at one point I saw someone with a white, um, with a white coat grab me. And he said, you know, Mrs. Owen, I'm Dr. So-and-so. And I just have to tell you that there was a bullet that is lodged at the base of his brain. And as soon as I heard that, because that's the first time I've heard of the extent of he was shot, I pulled my arm from this doctor and I started running, sprinting to my husband. As soon as I entered the emergency doors, it's like everything slowed down for me. It was slow motion and not a single deputy, not a single person in that hospital, in this gauntlet of law enforcement officers that I went through, not one person looked at me. Everyone had their head down. And I was, I finally made it to the room where my husband was. And as I walked in, I could see the, the damage that was done to him. He wasn't just shot once, Randy, he was shot five times. I could see, uh, you know, he was shot four times in the, on the head, one twice on his forehead, one on his left eye, the fourth shot uh, on his cheek. And the very final shot I later, later learned was the suspect pausing after executing him and he, sh- he shot his badge. Jesus. Shot my head. And that tells you the level of, of, of uh, you know, evil this individual is and, and what he did. After he shot my husband, he could have very, very easily fled because that shot completely disabled him. And I don't know if you want to get into the specifics of how this happened. I'm happy to talk about it. I'm good talking about it. So you tell me. Well, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about it. I, we don't need to get into full depth, but you know, I think the um, how how the incident unfolded and that led up to his death, I think, is important. So he, on that particular day, he was working overtime. He uh, was a half hour, a half an hour from end of shift. And a call, uh, 911 came, call came in of a woman at her residence. She and her young son were in the second floor. They heard glass break. She went over the balcony and saw a male inside of her home. She called 911 and the units were dispatched. 
that was not even my husband's area. He was supposed to be supervising a different area of town, but he was coming, he was driving back to his part of town when this call came out. So he was one of the closest units to the to the incident or to the call. And so he put out on the radio that he was on his way. And then seconds later, he puts out that a male, male suspect is uh, running, going over the wall and gave a quick description. He saw where the suspect went to. And then my the next radio transmission, he said, I'm going to be detaining one at gunpoint. Uh, now, he's a, as a supervisor, you're a one man car. So you're multitasking, you know, parking the car, putting it in park, talking on the radio and getting out and, and breaking leather, right? To, to deal with your with the threat. Um, and so when he said that, it was exactly nine seconds later when dispatch asked for his status. They said, 113 Sam, what's your status? Nothing. So in that short nine seconds, uh, that the, he had already been murdered. Hmm. And what happened in, in that particular case was when he came in, he parked out of 45 and he, he, I know how my husband works. I have no doubt he took cover behind the doors and he did, he did have his gun out. But what we gleaned from the suspect's interview, because there were no other witnesses was that, you know, he was facing away from my husband. He had a 38 in his waistband and without even looking behind him at my husband, what he made a decision to shoot him. He took that 38 and brought it up between his left arm and his body. And it was a blind shot. Incredible. My husband did not even did not see it coming. And as the suspect later said, it was his lucky shot. That shot hit my husband on the forehead. He went back, the gun he had in his hand flew back behind him and at this point, he was he was immobilized. The suspect ran up to my husband, stood over him, stood over his head and shot him three more times at point blank, paused and then shot his badge. He then, Randy, it gets worse. He then was found by the very first responding unit. When he arrived, he found the suspect searching my husband for his weapon because his intent was to take my husband's weapon and, and kill as many responding officers as he could. But luckily, remember I said that when he went down, the gun fell, when he fell back, the gun uh, fell behind him. So it did not give the suspect an opportunity to get a hold of his weapon. And that is when the first arriving unit and the suspect engaged uh, at that point. So now the suspect gets into my husband's police car, puts it in reverse. Thankfully, uh, he does not run my husband over, but now he's trying to flee in the police car. Another police car comes in and completely blocks blocks him. And at that point, there's uh, gunfire. You can see the bullet uh, on, on the windshields. And the impact of both vehicles uh, colliding was so great that the axle on my husband's vehicle completely broke and the tires were facing away. So then this individual then jumps over my husband's police car over the wall and takes off on foot into the neighborhood. Um, he is able to find a sliding glass door that is uh, unlocked. He opens it, goes in and takes two teenagers hostage. And while in there, um, 
he they found out that he had been struck once in the shoulder and you know these kids were able to somehow befriend him and he allowed one of the teenagers to go uh to the upstairs bathroom under the pretense that she was going to go get bandages to treat his wound well what she did very smart young lady she went upstairs to the bathroom and actually texted her mother which was really the way our officers or our deputies found out his location because before that we didn't know what house he had gone to so at that point uh, you know the deputies surround the house he had already changed his clothes and was going to flee to go someplace else but it was when he tried fleeing that time that our SWAT officers were able to take him into custody what uh, what kind of criminal history did he have oh boy he had a rap sheet as long as as you know the day is long uh he was on parole he was a, a violent offender and he was on parole for for robbery and he was a member of an la gang so you know just a very violent individual and obviously had no qualms about killing a uh, a law enforcement officer my, my guess is that he probably should never have been on the street should never have been released from from jail for his previous crimes that's correct he was released early and he was only released three months before uh he killed my husband and it was interesting because he was in la his family brought him up to the Antelope valley to get him out away from the gangs. But as you and I know, Randy, you can get the person, you can get the gangster out of the, out of the gang, but you can't get the gang out of the gangster. For sure. And so, and he brought that ideology and his violence and his crime spree here to the Antelope Valley. So <clears throat> you've had, you've had an incredible struggle dealing with the death of your husband in the ensuing years. Uh, so much so that um, that you you wound up writing a book about it with uh, with a friend of yours, and um, to this day, to this day, uh, you're you're still struggling. How is how are you now dealing with with this tragedy? And um, and if you wouldn't mind going into the you know how we met through the wounded blue, uh, just give a couple minutes of that. Absolutely. After my husband was arrested, or I'm sorry, after the suspect that murdered my husband was arrested. Now, of course, we had to go through the court process. And for me as a law enforcement officer, I just went into protective mode. I was numb during the whole process. And I felt a responsibility as his wife to be strong for everyone else. So I never showed any type of emotion. In fact, instead of me going into what people would expect me to do, which would be to cry and fall apart, I felt it necessary to, to be that, you know, that person that people could come to because I wanted to comfort people because I knew how much everybody loved my husband. And so now let's go to the court process. Initially, um, the case was filed with the previous district attorney who uh, filed a special circumstances case which uh, you know would have set up that case to be considered for the death penalty. Um, in 2020, 2020, December 2020, when the new uh, district attorney came into office, he removed the death penalty, life without the possibility of parole, all the special circumstances, gang allegations, gun allegations, effectively decimating my husband's case to a charge of a simple murder. 
Incredible. And we can talk of course, about these. of course, we're talking about the uh, Gascon, who is the current district attorney in Los Angeles and one of the most destructive human beings to the criminal justice system that exists today. 100% an evil man. He has no business being in charge of the district attorney's office. He really needs to be in charge of the public defender's office. He does not care about, about victims and, you know, like any woke DA that we've seen throughout the country. But back to the court process, uh, you know, so then, it, Randy, what's just absolutely incredible is that I, as a victim of a crime, I had to find an attorney to defend my rights as a victim. I had to go and hire our Marcy's Law attorney to fight against Gascon's policies so that we could retain all of the special circumstances charges that, uh, you know, that were initially filed in my husband's case. Uh, but luckily we had a superior court judge that didn't even have to hear the argument from my attorney. He agreed with everything and very fortunate that we were able to keep almost all the uh, allegations with the exception of the death penalty and uh, the death penalty. So um, eventually this individual made a deal. He, he made an offer to us and the offer was that he would take life without the possibility of parole, that he would plead guilty in open court to every single charge against him and that he would give up his appellate right. Wow. I could not, I was, I was floored. Yes, I was floored. I could not believe And my initial response was what, why? Because you know that he could have gone to court and he could have gotten a lot less. And that's what we're facing with, with uh, this deputy that was murdered on Saturday, De Deputy Clinton uh, Broomer. You know, if Gascon follows his directives, his edicts, his policies, he should only file a single act of murder, which carries a sentence of 25 years to life. That is, that is if the murderer gets the maximum. And we know that jurors are so unpredictable. I mean, at the end of the day, this guy could walk if he's only charged with a simple, uh, you know, charge of murder. And, and, and that that's why that's why what now here's I'm, I'm, we're, we're coming close to the end of our time, but we're going to have a part two of this discussion because we, we've only gotten to to a certain part of of uh, your experience. So uh, I'm going to bring you on for another show where we're going to continue this because what what is what your life has been um, torn apart and 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 the story of how you have put it back together is essential to the the point of of, uh, of that we're going to have you on again um, hopefully the next week where we can carry on this discussion but in the in just the few minutes that we have left what you talked about with with Gascon um relinquishing all of the the statutory um uh, requirements to get the maximum sentences this now is going to play a role in this in the death of and the murder of de of this of deputy clinton broomer absolutely and i am just waiting to see and i'll tell you why because gascon has he's a, he's in a catch-22 because if Per his policies, he should only file one count of murder. None of the special allegations, not the, uh, you know, not the um, lying in wait, 
not the use of a firearm, not the use of a killing of a law enforcement in the performance of his duties or escaping after killing a police officer. And those all hold um, life without parole or death as a punishment. And that's how he should be charged. So I am eagerly waiting to see what Gascon will do because he's in a pickle here. Because if he makes exceptions, which he could as the district attorney to file these allegations, now you're going to have a slew of other victims of crime, of family members who were murdered, who were not given that priority. Yeah, or this, that. Or this, that uh, this will be very interesting to see because this is such a high-profile case, and uh, and and we're gonna we're gonna see how this plays out. But we've run out of time for now. Uh, but I would absolutely love to have you on again on the next show because uh, I, I really want to talk about your journey and how important that that whole topic is. But uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with me today, Tanya. And I look forward to seeing you you at the uh, National Law Enforcement Survival Summit next week. Yes, yes, excited to attend. Thank you, Randy. So um, before we go, I want to tell you about the Wounded Blue. It is the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Officers. And this organization uh, has helped more than 14,000 law enforcement officers in the last five years. The mission of the Wounded Blue is to improve the lives of injured and disabled officers through support, education, assistance, and legislation. And quite literally, um, what we do is life-saving, life-changing. And uh, I have a team of incredible men and women, uh, the, the peer advocate support team, who are all officers who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up and screwed over. And they are still continuing to serve honorably their brothers and sisters. You can learn more about the organization by going to thewoundedblue.org. That's thewoundedblue.org. If you're an officer in need of assistance, please contact us. If you want to help law enforcement officers who have been injured and disabled in the line of duty, hit that donate button, give 10 or 20 bucks a month or whatever you can give. And I can tell you this, that your your money will be well spent. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Wounded Blue Hour here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Randy Sutton, and we'll see you again next week.